You are now tuned in to the Hip Hop Learners Podcast, a place for discussions of hip hop literature, both scholarly as well as general audiences. On the third episode, we have with us Mark V. Campbell. As a professor at the University of Toronto, Campbell has spent a considerable amount of his career working on issues relating to Canadian hip-hop. In 2010, Campbell launched the Northside Hip-Hop Archive, a self-described rogue archive that serves to document Canadian hip-hop history. In 2018, Campbell published Everything Remains Raw, photographing Toronto's hip-hop culture from analog to digital, and most recently, he has co-edited, alongside Charity Marsh, the scholarly collection We Still Hear, Hip-Hop North of the 49th Parallel. In this conversation, we focus on some of Campbell's scholarly articles, his archive, as well as Everything Remains Raw, and cater the conversation around the issue of working on hip-hop culture within Canada, a subject both him and I have close to our hearts. That said, enjoy the podcast. All right. So I guess first thing, man, thanks so much again for taking the time to speak to me here. I appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, and I'm excited to be able to go through um, your work in a little bit more detail. Right. Um, to be here. So you've spent a, a large portion of your career, at least over the last decade or so, covering um, Toronto hip-hop and Canadian hip-hop more broadly. Um before we kind of get into some of the meat and potatoes of um, different theory or, or arguments that you've made, I, I'm just kind of interested to to know how you ended up getting interested in this field to begin with. Um, I know you you have a DJ background, but in terms of academia and in terms of uh, wanting to study hip hop culture, what was your, um, I guess, entry into this field? Um, into well, uh, I was. I was, uh, when I went to university is when I started my radio show. So they were always intertwined because I was on campus radio. Yeah. At, at York University. So it was, for me, uh, it was a way to dovetail two of my realities at the moment, DJing on that show and studying for my undergrad. And I, I just kept going. Um, I actually didn't do a master's degree focused on hip hop, but my PhD was focused on remix culture and DJing. So it was literally what I was doing on radio, just going through the theory and trying to understand all the aspects of the culture from where I was positioned. What discipline were you kind of tackling it from? Was it sociology or? Yeah, my PhD is in sociology. Gotcha. I'm interested just uh, why sociology. It seems to be fairly common, but um, I, so I'm doing my work in, in history. And when I, I guess throughout the, the course of this project, I've been, um, uh, I've been contacted a few different times and people will try to persuade me to either go into the sociology route or the anthropology route or the ethnomusicology route. Um, I'm just kind of interested why you ended up uh, choosing sociology. Um, it provided me, I think I, I wasn't, a, like I had left the discipline of history and I found it too, uh, narrow and not willing to be interdisciplinary. And, um, in sociology, the department I was in was focused on social justice yeah. at the time. Um, and so it was, it was social equity. This was before the language of social justice. So, uh, it provided, uh, interdisciplinary lines where you could actually, you know, bring in diaspora studies. You could bring in cultural studies. There was a bunch of different ways that you weren't bound to producing a certain kind of analysis according to that discipline. Gotcha. Um, you mentioned your PhD studies on kind of a remix culture. Um, when did you end up making that transition to, to I guess, studying Canadian hip-hop more, more specifically? Um, 
I was, while I was doing that dissertation, I was also in the midst of, we were at the moment really where we were transitioning, uh, like, um, from analog to digital. So there was a lot there for me to write about in terms of what was getting lost in the, in the conversion to digital. And one of those things was local history. So, um, so I started to pay more attention to what was happening in Toronto around this transition where young people had no access to the last three or four years of information that wasn't on the internet. Um, and then I started to think, you know, more, more broadly outside of Toronto and, and connect with people in Saskatoon and Ottawa and Montreal and uh, starting to understand that, the, you know, the culture looks different in every city and that there's lots of potential to support the culture and it, and uh, the documentation of its history. So at this point, you would say that your your studies kind of reach Canada-wide or, or nationwide. Um, I've kind of... I, I was introduced to you through Everything Remains Raw, which was obviously a, a kind of a portraiture of, of Toronto hip hop, and it was looking at that specific community. Um, and then some of the articles that I would read would also end up leaning towards kind of Toronto hip hop, um, and not necessarily other places. But if you look at even the Northside Hip Hop Archive, you start to see, um, like Equal, for example, Lindsay has a contribution there, um, and she's obviously located in, Sas- uh, in Saskatchewan, right? Um, so there's clearly some decision. To, to start kind of going nationwide, but at this point you do consider yourself kind of a Canadian hip hop um, kind of, um, I guess, scholar. Um, I, no, I wouldn't consider myself a, because I'm interested in what's happening more around the production of knowledge and its preservation. So, you know, a lot of work I do now is with archives in the U.S. because there's so many of them. So I wouldn't consider myself solely locked into Canada, but but more interested and focused on uh, what's happening in my community and with the DJs and the MCs and the cats that I'm, you know, that I've been around and supported. So I'm more interested in that than, uh, you know, when you read the book, um, the introduction. So this Saturday, I believe in the Globe, there'll be um, there'll be an excerpt from the book from We're Still, we're still Here. And it really talks about why focus on Canada at this moment in the digital world kind of thing. And, um, and that's just one aspect of, of how I want to understand or study hip hop culture. Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to check out this book and I want to be able to talk to, uh, talk to you about that in a little bit more detail as well. Um, to start with, I, I wanted to, to talk about the paper that you ended up doing with, with Maya Stitsky, and I believe that's how you end up pronouncing her name, but it was on, um, archives and rogue archives and the kind of representation of, of hip hop within kind of government sanctioned systems. Um, and I found that fascinating and there was a lot of different kind of aspects there that I wanted to, um, I wanted to, I guess, talk about, but can you detail how that project ended up coming together and you working with Maya? Sure. Well, Maya at the time was a PhD student at Queen's University and she was, um, helping with the archives. She, her RA ship was in Toronto with me as opposed to being in Kingston. Yeah. So she didn't have to travel back and forth. And one of the things that I wanted to get onto the archives site was some of the most, the earliest writing in Canada about hip hop. And a lot of that early writing were in public newspapers, community newspapers. This is, you know, before there are even trade magazines. So my interest was trying to understand what were the factors that shaped public perception of hip hop, um, 
for members outside of the hip hop community at its point of origin or at its point of, of blossoming in, in, uh, in the Canadian context. Yeah, one of the things that you end up noting is that the absence of, of hip hop in Canadian archives, at the very least, was was racially motivated, right? So race, of course, ends up getting spoken about a lot when it comes to hip hop studies. Um, but it's an interesting argument to see that Canadian archi- uh, archives as kind of racially swayed. Um, I've worked in an archive myself here in Cape Breton, and I'm, I'm currently actually doing an internship there as well. And although black culture is documented to some degree, I too found it kind of odd that there seems to be almost no trace of black musical expressions, specifically in terms of hip hop. Um, and I had the same experience kind of looking at different archives, uh, within Canada and just seeing that, wow, there's, there's really nothing, even the more kind of public oriented ones like CBCs, like public archives. Um, they, they have a few, but it's, it's really kind of lacking. Um, I know archives end up relying on donations, but they're, kind of has to be um, some attempt to, to document hip-hop before this current generation, right? Like, I know myself, I, I'm working on it, and my work will end up ending in some sort of archive, let it be a rogue archive, or let it be um, more of a, a government body. But um, it, it just seems weird that if, if, um, if archives end up relying so heavily on donations, why there wouldn't be almost any coverage of of hip hop studies, it has to go beyond just the, the archive itself. Oh yeah, that definitely goes beyond the archive. And it, I mean, there's, there's multiple ways to understand why it doesn't work, but I mean, there's no particular, there's not one reason, right? The, the yeah. general public might, might not care about an archive. An archive may think itself more important than useful to the general public. There's lots of there's lots of different ways to sort of to um, to get in thinking about about the absence. Um, and that absence it's also about the, the field of specialization of the activist and who feels comfortable with exploring what and what has value. Right? So archival yeah. theory will tell you that something has value what someone decides it should be um, archived. Right? And um, and then those that don't um then it just these things disappear yeah yeah you, like i guess one one of the smaller details that you end up noting um within the same art, uh, article is that though there's talent here, um, here being within Canada, there was limited avenues to release hip hop music in Canada. Um, and one of the key aspects that I've realized when working specifically in smaller underground scenes within the country is this reliance on kind of DIY everything, right? So from producing music, uh, through like pause tapes and trips to staples to like photocopy cassette covers, uh, to throwing their own shows in tents, uh, to relying on their own radio programming via like college or community radio um i traditionally kind of looked at this as um as diy this diy culture as an attempt to stay true to to hip-hop's principles and to kind of not sell out um but your work kind of seems to suggest that this was forced to a degree that they simply didn't have more traditional avenues in order to to put this uh, material out or to promote it um or to, to network themselves. So they were forced to end up doing this in a DIY manner. Um, would you agree with that or? Yeah, I would, I, I would agree that there, I mean, it's just about options and opportunities, right? So in the 1980s in Toronto, 
one of, I think, I don't know what article I wrote about this. I, my other article around, uh, in public around hip hop archives. And I, I write my first chapter in the book with Charity Marsh is about, uh, Northside hip hop and, and creating an archive. You know, in the eighties when, when Big Daddy Kane and when Salt and Pepper and Ice Cube and Queen Latifah and LL Cool J are coming to Toronto, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, and they're coming, you know, these are their first international shows and they're building careers with stars are coming to Toronto. There wasn't an option for local artists to apply to an arts council to get a grant to go down to Philadelphia, New York to perform. Yeah. Those were not options. So it's not like uh, people decided to be independent. People, if they wanted to participate, you had to be independent. You had to start your own label. I mean, Tom would probably tell you that in, uh, out in Halifax. That the, uh, the possibilities of, of, of doing something else simply were not there. Yeah, 100%. You see that pretty early on, right? Like, even if you end up looking at something like Beat Factory, although it ended up getting... Um, I believe Beat Factory ended up getting major distribution, but it's it was an independent label, right? Like if you talk to Ivan Barry, he's like that's that's his creation. Yeah, yeah, he was an imprint, right? Yeah. So um, he had a he had tons of limitations on what he could do. Yeah, I want to talk about the the Northside Hip Hop Archive because one of the things that you end up mentioning in this paper is that you note that in order to bypass some of these kind of traditional archival structures that have produced these racially skewed kind of public record, um, that rogue archiving may end up being necessary. And of course, again, with the conversation of the Northside Hip Hop Archive, um, this idea of a rogue archive becomes important. But can you detail for those listening what exactly a rogue archive is? Sure. I mean, a rogue archive is a term by Abigail the Cosmic that she came up in her 2016 book by the same name. Um, and basically, it's the attempt of people to make um, usually fan-based archives online by not following archives, not following sort of uh, and being properly trained in the library sciences, but finding a way to exploit the affordances of digital culture and to capture content from their favorite artists and store it somewhere. So it really is a, uh, an archive that breaks all of the rules. Of did, you, did you have the idea of the Northside Hip Hop Archive in mind before reading Abigail's book? or uh, Northside Hip Hop started in 2010, so this year is our 10th anniversary. So gotcha. her book, when it came out in 2016, really just resonated because it made sense what we were trying to do for the last six years, you know, on shooting yeah. budgets and in a very haphazard kind of way. Gotcha. Um, yeah. Again, for those listening at home, are you able to detail what exactly the Northside Hip Hop Archive really is and um, what what the collection kind of is that you've you've gathered over the last 10 years then? Sure. Northside Hip Hop is, you know, it can be framed by a bunch of people as a rogue archive, a counter archive. Um, it is an online digital collection of memorabilia and artifacts connected to hip hop culture in Canada. And some of the things that we feature in there um, include, you know, early newspaper articles, radio shows, community, you know audio from community radio shows, interviews, mixtapes, magazines, pretty much what the, the, you know. Hey, Mark, sorry, you cut out there. Uh, so, uh, 
Sorry about that. Yeah, not a problem. So the last thing that you were saying was, um, I guess, the type of sources and the type of material that's actually held at the Northside Hip Hop Archive. Yeah. So basically, um, it is, it's rogue in the sense that there's a lot of rules that we're not interested in following. Um, and the orientation is to work with individuals and their collections yeah. to understand what they find interesting and then to support um, building you know, content and an online presence of that material. So that as opposed to other archives, working with, you know, the big name artists that may have sold a million records. Yeah. But the I'm sorry, you're cutting in and out a, a fair amount here. Um, how's that? That's much better. Yep. It's also it's so it's it's about recognizing all of the people that necess- aren't necessarily um, on the front page and getting a lot of promotion or or developing a sort of celebrity status. It's but just about honoring individuals and their experience in the culture and sharing what they feel is important. Yeah, that's something that I thought of a lot as well when I first started kind of researching Canadian hip hop is I would, um, I, as a hip hop head myself, and I consider myself a hip hop head before going into this project, um, I knew a few different artists within Canada. I knew your Swola members. Um, I knew um, a few members that came out of Toronto, and I knew your kind of legends, so your Maestro Fresh West or your Mishi Me or your Dream Warriors. Um but um, but I knew maybe like Adam Bomb or Destroy or something like that, like kind of in those kind of ball ballparks. Um, I knew some of the material that Thomas was putting out, but not very much. But I really had no idea just how um, extensive the scene was here. I didn't know of your Bird of Praise or um, your Specimens or any of these kind of local hip hop artists that really ended up creating these communities and these underground scenes. And there wasn't there wasn't a spot to go to to find that information. Um, you had certain avenues, but as you expressed in most cases, they were only interested in covering the people that sold a million records or the people that ended up crossing over into the uh, south of the border. Um, they weren't. There wasn't a spot to really locate the the really kind of obscure or underground communities. And I understand by even noting that it's obscure, it kind of comes with that territory and it's it's going to be self-evident, but um, there was there was a whole culture that was missing from the record, um, and that felt very kind of dishonest and uneasy, um, and that's really what ended up making me feel passionate about at least documenting a lot of this stuff and going out and interviewing a lot of these people and trying to end up getting their stories, um, because since there isn't much in terms of um, either print media covering a lot of the stuff, and you do, as you note in the article as well, you you do end up getting some, but it's mostly um, different performances and shows that are that are going on. Um, but even that is, is still lacking. Um, I, I wanted something that that actually had the stories, and doing oral history seemed to be the only way that you could actually uncover a lot of that material. Yeah, I mean, that's what we did. We did that in 2017 when we went across the country and we had to focus on oral histories because um, lots of folks don't document things. And it's uh, it's easier to have a conversation and to provide, you know, memory cues and that sort of thing to, to different communities uh, across the country. So 
Um, the reason why Northside Hip Hop is now 10 years old is because it's, you know, uh, to, to quote some of the most recent academic research on archives, it's, it's a, you know, it's invested in being a slow archive in building a collection and building it ethically and building it soundly through moving slowly and building through relationships, right? So there's most archives will boast that they have 16,000 photographs or 10,000 songs or something like that. And, um, and, you know, Northside Hip Hop has hundreds of, of, of hip hop videos on there now, but it's more invested in, in cultivating relationships that are, that are authentic and sincere and working with individuals and groups to, to, to be active members in the archiving of their own history. Yeah, because it's community focused is, is also another really kind of interesting factor, like because people are able to submit material to the archive itself, um, I guess similar as a, as a regular archive, but much more um, kind of publicly driven anyhow. Um, that's interesting because one of the, one of my experiences as I started going through this is I realized pretty quickly on or pretty early on that there was um, usually one or two different individuals within any given community that kind of acted as their own um, kind of community archive, right? So when I dealt with Saskatoon, at first he was trying to figure out, okay, well, who the hell is in Saskatoon that's worth a damn and worth speaking to? And I really had no idea. Um, and once I ended up speaking to a couple different people, so say Factor, um, or Factor Chandelier of Saskatoon or Epic, um, these people all uh, made it pretty quick, uh, pretty like glaring that if I want to end up learning about the community, I have to end up speaking to DJ Chaps. And once I spoke to Chaps, I found out that he's kind of that gatekeeper of that community. Um, he's been around yep. since the very beginning, and he's kept record of all of that material, um, or at least as much of it as he possibly can. Um, if I go mm -hmm. to Vic uh, Victoria, I find out that Degree um, from Sound Advice, with, originally with Mocha Only, Rennie Foster, and a couple other people, T-Double, um, he was kind of the gatekeeper of that community. Um, and the fact that the archive is the Northside hip hop archive is structured in a way that allows for these individuals in order to contribute. I feel like it's really key because otherwise you're not going to be able to end up getting a lot of that material, right? You're relying on a few different individuals when you ended up traveling across the country. I guess my question is, um, what was the, the process in terms of identifying some of those key people to speak to? Cause that was a process for me to end up having to do and learn. Cause I didn't, know who these people were to begin with yeah i mean i knew i knew people from their work so when we went to saskatoon uh we linked up with equal and a chap was there he actually dj'd for that night for us yeah um and i connected with her because i wanted i wanted to get her voice and her opinion on you know she's she's also at the epicenter of the culture there her jesus a couple other folks outside of there that we know of yeah. Um, and, and she was able to provide some unique perspectives. Uh, other folks that I knew, you know, from being on a radio, I, I connected with a bunch of different DJs and the DJs usually knew who the central figure would be. So like in somewhere like Toronto, trust would be someone, you know, after working with him really closely for our first exhibition in 2010, he got pioneers it was, and he performed there. It was clear to me that he was that kid that spans four generations, four decades of hip hop in Toronto, and he's kept everything. Yeah. Um, so uh, once I had a, a, a paradigm, then I understood that, like what you learned, that it was about reaching out through my radio show, 
two artists that I either put on my show or I've had on my mixtapes or whatever, and figuring out uh, what what we can make possible with the time and the limited funds we had to like go to these different cities and do events. So we did an art exhibition in Hamilton, Ontario, um, where a bunch of DJs like Realistic were out there with us uh, hanging out. We did a we did a concert with. Um, or just a performance with Equal and a couple of Equal was there, Tara, T. Rhyme, I believe was there. Um, and in Toronto, we did just a party with Ron Nelson. And then, uh, so, you know, we, I, basically we, we, we celebrated these folks as local architects in their community, hip-hop architects. And then we did something in Montreal. We worked with um, the one guy that everyone pointed to as being, you know, foundational to the, the, the black music scene in Montreal, Butcher Keith, who's still on radio now at CKUT. So that was, that was that process. And we only did the four cities because it was, it was mammoth. Like I had a big team to take with me and that sort of stuff. So it was very difficult, but we'll probably, we want to come out to Halifax and do something like that to an oral history project or, or public event. Yeah. But I don't know how that's going to happen now. We're going to do, yeah. So what? I mean, to go back to how we found people this year during the pandemic, I enlisted DJs from many of those cities that we had already visited and others uh, to do some live streaming of local and do DJ sets of local hip hop artists. Um, and they were pretty much doing vinyl only sets. Some of them were doing using Serato, but it was about digging in their in their archive, in their musical archive, and then you know live streaming sets that that put us on to local hip hop talent there. So we did Winnipeg, we did Ottawa, we did Hamilton, we did Montreal, we did Toronto, I did Scarborough, and that was just another way of, of shaking up the paradigm of what an archive is and who's an archivist because DJs know their records. And they know the audience reaction to the records and they know, you know, the importance of certain records in their city. So that's kind of a project that we're doing now. Uh, and we did five cities and because it's our 10th anniversary, we're trying to get to 10. So Halifax is definitely on our list as, as you know, recruiting a DJ from there and Chaps will be on our list for Saskatoon, um, and some other folks. I think, uh, flip side and, and, in uh, J Swing or Flipside in Vancouver, kind of how we're how Northside hip hop is, is trying to think differently about archiving, also during the pandemic. Yeah, the role of the DJ I think is an interesting kind of topic to bring up because um, I found from the majority of the communities that I've looked at, it usually ends up being a DJ that ends up being that kind of community gatekeeper or that community knowledge keeper. Um, so I mentioned Chaps in Saskatoon, which is, of course, a DJ. Degree is a DJ from Victoria. Um, if you're looking at Halifax, you look at people like Uncle Fester, who is a DJ, or you look at people a little bit early on, like Joe Run, or like um, Buck65, who is DJ Haslam before he was known as Buck65. 65 or stinking rich. Um, and I feel like just the nature of being a DJ ends up granting you access to not only contacts, um, but you're also kind of forced to be in the know-how. Like, I feel like if you're an artist or you're an MC, for example, and you're participating in the culture through that avenue, you're 
naturally going to be more inclined on or and more focused on your own endeavor, right? You're focused on your own writing. You're focused on producing your own material. You're focused on marketing your own material. But if you're a DJ, yeah. you're by, by its nature, you're forced to, um, you're forced to deal with the community, right? Especially in Canada where there's CanCon limitations and you're forced to usually end up putting in 35% Canadian content. You're forced to end up bridging a community, um, within your own kind of lo- local, right? Um, and I, if you remain a DJ for a long period of time, so over the course of a couple different generations, um, you're going to end up being this huge knowledge source on that location's hip hop community. Um, and as you said, they're also networked. So if you end up, um, if you talk to DJ Chaps, um, Chaps is going to know every, almost every other DJ in Canada that's, that's worth a damn, right? Um, just because it's connected and there's, there is that connectivity um who was the cat in victoria that you mentioned a degree um, so is, in... is victoria kind of because victoria is a boat ride away from vancouver right correct yeah um, Island. yeah but if you if you are interested in knowing about vancouver hip-hop uh, degree is still the person to speak to um so really kind of that whole west coast um degree mm-hmm. i would i would 100 percent single out um he was a member of sound device early on um so that's the late 80s with mocha only um well mocha only ended up joining a little bit later but it was um essentially degree t double and rennie foster um later he went by rennie foster which is his, his government name um but at the time he went by dubnut one and they were sound advice so then later incorporated mocha only before mocha only ended up leaving to join split sphere with uh with prevail um but for that period of time degree was was within the community from the early 80 or from the late 80s onward um and then once um sound advice ended up splitting up in the early 90s um he ended up being uh just kind of a regular dj and would dj house parties or events um but he would also end up promoting and throwing shows so he was really actively involved in that community and he kept almost everything um so in terms of flyers in terms of um any sort of recorded material degree has it all um he's definitely someone that you should be looking at yeah, I'll, 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 like, uh, after this, I'll ask you to link me with him. Yeah, but, 100%. Um, the guys I know are like late 90s, right? I don't know earlier. And I know, I know Neil, Neil Scobie was there in the early 90s. So yeah, he probably he had, could put me onto someone. He had his In Effect show, um, as, as Rumble, then later on was fin- oh, Finesse and Showbiz with, with Rick Threat, right? Um, and that would have been the 90s, the early 90s, anyhow. Uh, but the radio show, In Effect, I think started in 88. That, that Neil ended up running. Um, and if I'm correct, I think that Neil ended up growing up in Vancouver, but the radio show that he ran, um, it was, or maybe he was grew, uh, grew up in Nanaimo, and then the radio show that he ran was in Vancouver, but he had to end up taking the ferry once a week in order to do the radio show. Um, he'd like leave early from school, take the ferry, and then go do the radio show. And he did that every week when he was in high school still. Um, so I think it might have been CITR, so I think it would have been uh, he he being living on, on the island and then traveling to Vancouver for the radio show. But yeah, he was actively involved as well. And I've spoken to Neil, and he knows he knows a whole hell of a lot about that community. Nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely speak to Degree. Um, he went by Degree One as well, but most people just refer to him as Degree. But yeah, okay. I can I can get you in touch with him 100. percent Cool. Thank you. Um. The, 
I, I, I want to kind of bring it back to this conversation on archives, because this has been something that I've wrestled with myself as well. Um, I want my findings to go towards a public archive, because uh, I feel like there's kind of a longevity and a permanence attached to the idea of like a quote unquote real archive. Um, whereas these internet based rogue archives, I feel like in a way are kind of like temporary pieces of fandom. But at the same time, I want my material to be kind of the most publicly accessible as possible. And one of the roadblocks I deal with all the time when dealing with actual state sanctioned archives is they're a pain in the ass. You have to end up going in requesting information. Um, and if you're doing it by email, it takes forever. Sometimes there's a charge in order to be able to actually um, get them to go in and, and scan in any material. There's generally a charge associated with that. Um, it's it's a pain in the ass, and it's not user-friendly. It's not publicly really accessible in, in most circumstances, especially people within the hip-hop community that this knowledge kind of pertains to. They're not knowledgeable about public archives in a lot of ways in order to be able to go in and seek this stuff out. Um, when I started university, we have an archive with the University of the Beaten Institute, and when we were brought down to the Beaten, we'd have to take like a little course on how to even use the archive and search the archive, right? It's like, it's hidden behind these roadblocks and these these barriers in order to be able to actually access the information. And that's not something that I want. I Even more, I feel like I have a responsibility to the community that I'm studying in order to make it the most publicly accessible way, uh, kind of forum as possible. And I've wrestled with how to end up doing so. Let it be end up releasing a documentary paired with the book that kind of reaches to a broader audience. Um, or even if the book itself and how the book should end up being structured, because I do want it to be for general audiences. But the other aspect of that is where do I put all this this information, this this knowledge that I've gathered in terms of my actual raw interviews, my flyers that I've gathered, because I have at this point, digitally at least, but I have uh, over 2,000 flyers, I would say. Um, I have all this information and I want it to be publicly available, but I'm scared of the temperance of a uh, uh, of like an internet archive i want something to be permanent um i guess can you can you speak to that to some degree or at least maybe provide a suggestion or kind of what your thoughts on storing the material in this manner is um specifically in terms of the the permanence issue yeah i mean i've had to obviously i've had to wrestle with this question right so there are some cats that will give me items just to keep for them and I'm a custodian of it, and I'm responsible for this one-of-a-kind. For example, I have, like, one-of-a-kind records, you know, um, that that would have been, like, early press releases, et cetera, that the artists have given to me to enter into Northside Hip Hop Archive. Yep. And um, our, our um, basically where I sit now, and one of the reasons why I'm studying archives in the United States, Hip Hop Archives in the United States, is because I have lots of opportunities and to, to, to create uh, a physical archive. But um, the strategy right now with Northside that I've, that I've, you know, people have said to me, you know, if something happens to you, everything on this archive disappears. So I've been building relationships with different libraries to house collections in different places in Toronto and having that serve as a model where, you know, I've spoken to the library in Halifax um, and, you know, they would be interested in building a collection, right? But I'm not the yeah. dude in Halifax, but we, I do have the paradigm of what the relationship could look like because 
the some of the traditional pieces of the archive, um, you know, location, hours of operation, ability to access material. It's not useful for the public. It's not useful for performing artists. Yeah, really only useful in a research context. And uh, so Northside Hip Hop now is evolving into a digital platform that becomes uh, uh, that accompanies these different collections in different places, right? So I have a collection at the Toronto Public Library, uh, building a collection at Ryerson University in Toronto and building one out at my university in Scarborough outside of Toronto, uh, well, in the east end of Toronto. And the strategy really is, is like who, who, uh, will be the custodian of different collections and how can Northside Hip Hop influence their, um, the very static ways that they archive because the, the relationship is not, um, when I broke our relationship with the institution, it's about how we can mutually influence one another. So they might give me preservation tips. Um, and the collection that I provide to them, I might set up an event that allows the public to, to work with the collection or explore the collection. So I think that going forward, the solution has to be one in which, you know, Northside Hip Hop provides a digital extension of different collections so that one can browse the collection or access parts of it. And, you know, maybe you can access everything, right? But it, people know where it's stored and they know that the University of Toronto isn't disappearing anywhere or the Toronto Public Library is not disappearing anywhere with these items. So that's really what the strategy is right now. And we've had lots of success in finding different homes for different things. And, you know, for the people that don't want to work with an institution, lots of cats in the hip hop community, the North Side becomes a place where we can work together on, on helping create a collection for them or, um, or provide them with infrastructure so that they can digitize themselves and they can figure out how to get it up on their own blog if they're so interested, right? Yeah. I haven't dealt with the Toronto Library in any specific archive but um, that you've mentioned, but is there, um, is there any kind of pushback that you end up getting from these institutions for housing data there that you're also making publicly available elsewhere? Like, is there any sort of proprietary kind of notion that they wish to uh, kind of keep to themselves? Um, is that Not something that comes up? Not at all. As long as we have the permission, it, it all comes down to the permission of, of the, the rights holder of whatever it is. If that person could be determined, then, you know, we say, they say, oh, yeah, sure, we want, we want Mark to have X amount on the website, um, and we want the whole collection to be stored in the physical library, right? So once it's online, uh, you know, once it's digitized, it's just about rights and, and how those get organized. What's been your process in terms of dealing with some of the the intellectual property rights when it comes to things like flyers, for example, um, that are almost in the public domain once they're they're released, but there's still a creator of that flyer, but oftentimes that creator is is completely unknown, and the person that you're getting the flyer from is generally not the creator of that flyer. Um, the flyers have been the, the main kind of issue for me, because when I do an oral history interview, it's, it's, it's mine. Um, the actual audio itself and the stories are, are from them, but I, I read a consent form and I get that, I get that consent from the, the person I'm speaking to. But when it comes to the flyers, which is the, the major other source that I've been able to acquire, um, that intellectual property concern has, has come up frequently. Well, I mean, part of part of um, the way that a rogue archive works is, you know, there are some things that 
have historical value that should remain in the public domain. And as long as, you know, you can develop a, a Creative Commons licensing with the graphic designer, um, the graphic designer usually knows as long as nobody is trying to profit off of their, their, their graphic design work or their imagery or likeness, that it's, you know, it's in the public domain for a public good. So the way that we're moving with those things is encouraging people to consider a Creative Commons license if they are indeed willing to share their creation or you can find these people. And then there's a bunch of scenarios where designers don't, A, they don't care, or B, they know that they used an image on their photo, on their flyer without the permission of that person, right? Especially like nightclub flyers and that sort of stuff will have like a random Yes. on the flyer kind of thing. Like so they know that stuff. they, yeah, if, if, if their work becomes, you know, hyper-circulated or super well-known, that they, they open themselves up to a liability of, of not having that image cleared. Gotcha. So it's murky. But it, um, you know, copyright is a, especially in remix culture, copyright doesn't really serve, serve the general public well in terms of circulating information because these flyers aren't being printed on sweatshirts to be sold and they're not they don't have a public they don't have a like an accrued collector value in any kind of real sense like maybe in the US they do but the the public education aspect of it is our main focus so when we have to negotiate for copyright and these sorts of things I encourage people to think about creative commons copyright gotcha Yes, on this this note of I guess accessibility and trying to, to get information across to the public um, one of the projects that you were involved with and produced was the the book everything remains raw and for those listening at home that haven't checked it out this is a book that was published a few years ago it's called uh, everything remains raw Raw, uh, photographing Toronto's hip-hop culture from analog to digital, and essentially it's a photo collection of Toronto's hip-hop history paired with editorials and write-ups regarding the photography as well as the history as a whole. And again, kind of as someone that's writing this book on Canadian hip-hop and has wrestled with this idea of accessibility, um, I find it interesting that you ended up creating this photo collection as your kind of way of, of dealing with this information, because obviously there's plenty of other avenues that you could have ended up taking. You could have just wrote a more traditional style book. You could have um, just had like an oral history style book with just quotes of interviews, um, but you ended up specifically choosing this, um, even outside of like a documentary, for example. Um, I'm curious if you can detail some of the process with Everything Remains Raw, but also your choice in order to go with this format. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I, I had, uh, up until that point, it, it, I had been doing exhibitions for eight years in Toronto. And that was designed as an exhibition catalog for the Contact Photography Festival that was happening at a gallery that asked me to put together a show. So um, we wanted to work with knowing that there are lots of behind the scenes people, lots of photographers that, you know, are smart in terms of keeping archivally storing their analog photos. I wanted to create an accessible coffee table book that could span a couple generations, it would be easy to get into, like access to images and, and understand a little bit about the culture from multiple perspectives of multiple generations. So we decided to go that way because the gallery was willing to support the publication of the book and the artists I was working with are 
you know, many of them, except for the graffiti artists, we had three graffiti artists involved. Many of those photographers were very under the radar, uh, super unknown in terms of what they did for the culture. And it was a way of celebrating their contribution to the culture. Um, one of the, the photos in the, in the collection in the book is a photograph of one of the exhibits that you ended up holding. And it features um, basically a wall of different fanzines that were created. Um, and I assume the fanzines were, were Toronto-based fanzines, um, let it be Peace Magazine or Pound, etc. Um, that's been a, a huge kind of challenge for myself in order to be able to acquire a lot of these fanzines because I found that the, the fanzines really end up being the, um, like, one of the main kind of primary sources that you were able to get from that era, right? As we've talked about, mm-hmm. um, the print media is lacking. Um, the archival records are lacking to say the least. Um, and these fanzines end up being great kind of primary sources with interviews, with content, with just, uh, with radio flyers and stuff like that as well, addressing when different programs are going to be on. Um, but they're extremely hard to, to come by. Um, at least from my own experience, I've been able to find a few, um, and I've been able to request some to be scanned in, but, from the looks of this here, your exhibit featured plenty, like dozens and dozens of these. Um, I was just kind of curious how you ended up getting a lot of these uh, fanzines and how difficult of a process that was. Um, it was I, I was there. I mean, that was... So when we did our 2017 Oral History Project, it was called I Was There. And it really, for the folks that... When all those magazines came out, I'm, I'm probably a little bit older than you, that was our internet. So the only way you could know really about the culture if you weren't there, um, or even if you were there, like album reviews were printed there, yeah. album releases were printed there, artist interviews were printed there, and I wrote for one of them. Um, so most of that is my collection, and then I had I reached out to some of the other pub- uh, publishers who put on display. Some of them, you know, some of the missing covers that I didn't have. And it was really about demonstrating that there is a history and that history is hard to find and incomplete. And it's an open book if you can, if you can collect all the elements to it. Now, you know, Elements magazine? I do out of Vancouver. I own three of the issues, I believe. There's only, I believe, seven or eight total. Well, UBC uh, has digitized all of them and put them on their, their library website. That was just recent, right? I I believe uh, somebody linked that told to me. That was a couple of years ago. Okay, I, I could be wrong. I just I do know of what you're referring to, um, and I was just linked that maybe three or four months ago um, during the pandemic, anyways. Um, and yeah, it's it's beautiful. Um, but yeah, the Elements magazine is a great one. Um, the Boognish, uh, was Thomas Quinlan's fanzine. That was one of the first ones that I ended up getting digitized scans of. Um, and that was based out of Toronto and it covered hip hop and punk and a few different kind of counterculture. What was it movements. called? The Boognish magazine. Okay. I know. Um, 
There was only a hand. There was only a handful of issues. I want to say four or five, but that's fairly typical when we're talking about these type of publications. Um, but it was um, it was the first one that I kind of ended up getting. And he started out doing interviews in Toronto because that's where Thomas grew up and lived. Um, and eventually, he ended up um, going up to Halifax on a trip in order to interview some of the people out in Halifax. And that's kind of how he ended up starting Han Solo Records and Basements of Batman and getting a lot of. Um, I guess the, the Halifax scene, a little bit more recognition, uh, originally started with, I believe, a, an interview with Hip Club Groove or Show Run for the Boognish. Um, I have those scans. Um, I, I I would need to get Thomas's permission, but I'm pretty sure I can I can send those over to you um, if you're interested. And then Fritz the Cat um, out of London, Ontario, ended up having the In Divine Style magazine or In Search of Divine Styler um, magazine. And that was another fanzine that lasted maybe a dozen or so issues. But um, recently, semi-recently, within the last five or so years, I think, um, he ended up combining those issues to, to a print book. Um, so that's readily available. But that's, that's one of, uh, again, those kind of gems that you end up coming across. And I'm glad that Ryan, that Fritz, ended up uh, putting that together and compiling that. I think... Um... Flip side is doing that. Jay Fling actually is doing that with some um, elements. It actually it should be out this week or this month or something like that. Yeah, I heard so about that put as all well. All issues into a book. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited to be able to go through that because um, it's it's something that, like I said, I only have a few issues myself physically um, that I was that I was sent to. And I, I've seen occasionally um, some of these end up getting like pop up on eBay and whatnot as well. And as a collector, I I do end up buying a lot of these um, just to be able to have for my own collection, but also to be able to utilize as as research material for for the project. Um, but um, they're they're hard to come by. They really are. There is um there's one on Northside Hip Hop. Have you had a chance to go? Have you seen Boom Comics? Uh, Boom Comics. B O O N E. B O O M boom boom um yeah. no I have haven't those, I don't believe so I have those digitized on Northside Hip Hop okay and um I may have seen them then because I have went through the archive your archive um but mm-hmm. I I don't recall it off memory how long ago did you go to the archive um well I went through recently just in preparation for this but I went through more extensively and like took time with it um maybe about a year and a half ago okay. There's lots, there's lots of new stuff on there now. But anyhow, that magazine, that, uh, it was a comic book actually. A comic book magazine that had, you know, artist interviews and had advertisements and it came with a mixtape. Um, and I have a couple, I think I, one of them is on the wall actually at that gallery where the mixtape is still in the bag and it's sealed. Um, but I scanned all of them. They did, you know, the publisher gave me the whole thing. Yeah. Every copy. And, uh, so it's on, it's up on issue and we linked it to the site. So you can also go through there because little, you know, Director X? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. He's a videographer, uh, that kind of took over for Hype Williams and started doing kind of, you know, all of the major hip hop videos by Buster Rhymes and Cardinal and, uh, Sean Paul. He did all this. Anyhow, he's a, he's a major figure in, in, in the music video world. Like he literally took over for Hype Williams after Hype Williams kind of did, um, did Timberland and Whiskey kind of stuff. Yeah. Anyhow, he got his start in Boom Comics and 
a lot of his early comics and comic book characters are written into that magazine. But it's like a thousand percent hip hop. That's fascinating. Yeah, the only the only kind of Canadian style hip hop uh, comic book that I've been able to acquire um, or even really been able to see is the the Dream Warriors comic that they ended up putting out for their uh, subliminal stimulation release. Um, and that's fascinating. I, I love to be able to go through that every once in a while and just um, and just read that. But um, but no, I, I'm not familiar with Boom Comics. Yeah, yeah you can check it out on the website. Um, I want to talk about, before we end up going, I want to talk about the new uh, book that you have um, out. You said it was released last week, um, the uh, We Still Hear um, Hip Hop North of the 49th Parallel. Can you kind of detail, um, one, can you remind everyone, and myself included, when exactly the book is, is coming out or has came out, um, but also uh, what the book is about? Yeah, I think the book came out October 24th or 20th, no, 24th. I think it was the 22nd. It was like the middle of the week or something. I think it was October 24th or 20th. It was last week. Gotcha. The book is a collection of academic essays that chart a course across Canada looking at different themes uh, and aspects of different themes, um, including the indigenous elements of hip-hop in, in, on Turtle Island, uh, looking at issues around language and gender in a place like Montreal, race, language, and gender in Montreal, uh, looking at the, the Pew Pew movement in Montreal, the beat production. So uh, from my understanding, the Pew Pew movement is where Kay Trinata and all of these cats came out of. Yeah. Um, and there's an essay in there on Canaan. So it's a bunch of different essays that look at the politics and culture of hip-hop across Canada. There's something there about the, I think there's an article on Beat Nation, which was that exhibition that was curated by Tanya Willard, probably around 2008, 2009. Um, yeah, so it's, it's meant to be a text that can be used at the undergrad or graduate level in a university context. I wish I would have been able to read that before before conducting this conversation here. That said, it's uh, at least plenty of room in order to speak it kind of in the future. Um, I'm really excited to be able to go through it because, like I said, I'm dealing with Canadian hip-hop myself, and I'm sure it's going to be kind of a plethora of knowledge, um, very much related to, to my own work. Um, and I, I love reading about this type of stuff. This is uh, this is material that, as I said, as I started going through this project, I realized was really underdocumented. And as I went through the project over time, I fell kind of in love with the community and very passionate about this community. And I, I, I'm very encouraging of, of other people um, doing Canadian hip hop research and documenting this in any kind of form or fashion. Um, I know there's a, a few kind of independent documentaries that are being published and people going back and re-releasing old material, let it be in Chopped Herring Records or Dust and Dope Recordings or, or these kind of labels that are um, entrusted to kind of re-release old vinyl and cassette demos and material that just wasn't put out before. Um, so there's kind of this resurgence in order to, to go through and, and treat the history as something respectable. And I'm all for that. And I love that. Um, so to be able to see you, you guys end up putting this collection together that, that kind of honors Canadian hip hop in general, I think is, I think is fascinating. I think it's great. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to go through it. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
Let me know if you want to chat about it afterwards because, uh, you know, uh, I could connect you with any of the other authors that, you know, there's a bunch of other people involved that might may write or have written something that interests you in that book. Um, and and when you get a chance, you should check out, I haven't I haven't actually got this onto the archival site yet. I got to uh, transfer it over from Instagram, but our, we were doing a live from the live from the creek. Instagram live sessions that I mentioned to you earlier about. So if you want to hear some, you know, some of the like choice cut underground vinyl selections from Ottawa in 94, 95 or, or Montreal, 94, 95, 98, uh, we have, I have DJs that have done live sets on Northside Hip Hop's Instagram page. Um, That's amazing. We could, yeah. And then we did, we actually did short interviews with them afterwards. So like a 20 minute kind of oral history around how they got into DJing, what were some of the influential records in their city, all that sort of stuff. Um, so it's another angle for you to kind of think about DJs as archivists in a certain kind of way. That's amazing. Um, yeah, definitely something I'm interested in. And I would love to be able to take you up on that offer to speak to you again or speak yeah. to some of the other people that contributed to the, the collection. Um, I will end up letting you go. We're past our hour mark as of yeah. now. But again, I can't cool. thank you enough for taking the time out to speak to me here today. And I'd love to kind of continue this conversation um, at another date. Yeah, yeah, we should stay in touch. And um, I'll probably hit you up about DJ Degree and start out there and, and get him involved and see him in town for you. Perfect. All right. Okay. You have yourself a wonderful day, Mark. Take care.